This is The Sidebar for the week of July 21st, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And we were giving them a lot of light, but the problems of lousy education, poverty, broken families, uh, no opportunity, uh, were enormous and we're going to take a long time to deal with. Fifty years ago this week, the 1967 Detroit riots began. They lasted five days in July, ignited by long-simmering racial tensions. This week on C-SPAN's The Sidebar podcast, we look back at the riots with Joseph Califano Jr. He served as a principal domestic aide to then-President Lyndon B. Johnson and was with him during that tumultuous time. Joseph Califano, you served as a senior domestic advisor to President Lyndon Johnson from 1965 through 1969. So take us back 50 years ago, July 23rd, as the riots began to break out in Detroit. What do you remember? Well, that afternoon, I was actually on a sequoia that President shot with the president. We were working on the tax message. We were trying very hard to get a tax bill passed. And we were working on that, and we were also reviewing the strategy for to get Thurgood Marshall confirmed as the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. It was a very controversial hearing, and we had a lot of resistance in the Senate. And we got, we got the first word that there were some disturbances in Detroit. They were troubles, it was troublesome because we had just gotten over some riots in Newark. Uh, which had, uh, where several lives were lost and uh, hundreds of people were injured, uh, all handled uh, by Governor Hughes, the governor of Newark. But we were watching it very closely. The riots in Detroit, which lasted a total of five days, 43 people dead, more than 1,100 injured, 7,200 arrests, and 2,000 buildings in the greater Detroit area either damaged or completely destroyed. So when you hear those numbers, what goes through your mind? Well, it, it was a, it was a stunning uh, experience. First of all, uh, it was probably the largest riot we were experiencing since Watts. And you remember Watts came in 1965. We were, in a sense, in a race against high expectations. And LBJ used to say that what once is inevitable for the oppressed becomes intolerable when there's light at the end of the tunnel. And we were giving them a lot of light, but the problems of lousy education, poverty, broken families, uh, no opportunity uh, were enormous and were going to take a long time to deal with. So in that sense, we really were in this terrible race. And this was deeply troubling. The second thing was, in addition to all the people that were killed and injured in Detroit, we had an enormous problem of trying to maintain the funding for the Great Society programs. And Johnson was always on edge that the worst enemies to the programs we were trying to pass might be the people we were trying to help because of their inevitable impatience. 
So what impact do you think these rights had on the Great Society program and maybe well, some a sense of Republicans who didn't want to fund these measures? Well, this, had, this was a very politically charged uh, riot, if you will, in Detroit. First, we had the problem of Governor Romney, who did not want to declare that he couldn't control uh, the rioters and had to ask for federal assistance. So there was a lot of back and forth between Governor Romney and the president and the attorney general and uh, at, at the time as to how to phrase the governor's request. That was number one. Number two, Gerald Ford, who was the minority leader of the House of Representatives, was talking about the fact that the country was unraveling because of all the things that we were doing for uh, in the poverty program. So uh, there was a lot of opposition, and several Republicans in Congress issued a statement during this during this period that this was this was really being prompted by the promises Johnson was making. So it was a major factor. It was not just a riot. It was, it was also an enormous political problem. And remember, Romney was an undeclared candidate for president of the United States. And he hadn't yet declared, but everyone knew he was going to run. So it was a highly charged situation. Uh, president Johnson asked uh, Cy Vance, who was then in private practice, he had left the Pentagon, and uh to go out to Detroit because he didn't trust the word we were getting from from the people in Detroit uh, on the ground. The word we were getting was mostly from Romney's people. Vance went out there and said it was terrible, it was bad. We would probably have to send troops in. Then the question became of what do you do with the troops? Uh, How do you send them in? Did Johnson federalize the National Guard? Once he did, he became responsible for their conduct. And then LBJ said, I will not allow them to carry ammunition. And the general who was going to be charged with handling uh, the military presence in Detroit said, that's unacceptable, too dangerous. And Johnson said, all right, they can carry it, but nobody can arm their weapons. I don't want Americans killing Americans. Uh, Nobody can arm their weapons unless... Uh, it's been okayed and ordered by a military officer in the regular army. And so there's a lot of tension around the riots as well. Ultimately, we did send the troops in and uh, and eventually uh, brought you know an end to the rioting, but not an end to the problems. And as I said, these things don't happen in isolation. While all this was going on, we were trying to get a tax bill passed to fund the Great Society programs. We were trying to get Thurgood Marshall, who would be the first African-American justice on the Supreme Court, confirmed. And there was a lot of opposition to him in the Senate. Remember, in those years, the Senate committees were controlled by Southern senators who did not want that appointment to succeed. It was a very bitter hearing. So all of this is happening at the same time. And, of course, the riots in Detroit all playing out on television, certainly no 24-7 cable, but it came into the living rooms on the evening news every single night. Yes, the riots were there, 
And remember, the riots were, were a few days after the Newark riots, which didn't get as much attention as Detroit. Detroit riots got more attention because there had been riots there during Roosevelt's administration. And at one point that night, when we were trying to decide what to do, the president told me to get the news stories, the New York Times actually stories, of about the riots in Detroit and how Roosevelt handled them. Also, in his, we were in his office. Uh, we we were uh, the president, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Abe Fortas, the Supreme Court Justice Johnson had appointed, uh, and the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army. Uh, Hoover constantly saying things like, you know, they're communist-directed, they're going to tear Harlem apart if we don't settle this. We've got to move right away. Very, very uh, you know, colorful and dramatic. Uh, and there, in that context, Johnson had to make these decisions. Now, Abe Fortas was actually the person who drafted a statement for Johnson. Johnson was very distrustful of Governor Romney. That did not help the situation in the riot city of Detroit. And uh, he, uh, in his statement, went out of his way to point out that Romney was unable to control the situation because he thought Romney would probably be the person who would run for presidency and, and would be the strongest candidate. As it turned out, Nixon ran and Johnson didn't run. But important to point out that Lyndon Johnson was still thinking about running for re-election because he could have in 1968. That's right. He he was still thinking about it. And I've always thought that uh, I've always thanked God that Johnson had decided not to run irrevocably uh, about five days before Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. Why? Because he was then able to deal with the resulting problems that came out of the King assassination, the riots in cities all over the country, without anybody being able to accuse him of having some political interest. He had no interest except getting the problem solved. You mentioned the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. From that period in the summer of 1967, here is a conversation between Mr. Hoover and President Johnson. I'll have for you tomorrow that memorandum you want on all the riots in the country. That's right, and I want you I want you to keep your men busy to find a central connection. I'm not I wouldn't be a damn bit surprised that this poverty group here is not stirring up some of this and some of my friends and your old friends that after both of us uh, are not stirring this up around the country. Oh, so you better you better watch New York and watch Detroit and watch Plainfield and see and we'll find some central theme down the road a little bit. Joseph Califano, as you hear that exchange between J. Edgar Hoover and President Johnson, what comes to mind? Well, I, you know, the, 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 first of all, Hoover was always, always convinced that there was some communist involvement that was de- that was creating the riots. Johnson, when he, in the reference to that phone conversation when he talked about the poverty group, Johnson thought that. The community action agencies, which we had created in the uh, poverty program to give political power to the poor in the cities, mostly it was the poor and the black in the cities, uh, that, that those groups had become really, you know, firebrands. And remember, this is the day, the era of Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael threatening 
uh, the lives of Dean Rusk and other cabinet officers. Uh, it, these, these were very heated days. And Johnson, after the D- Detroit riots, in fact, they weren't quite over, I think, when he did it, he established something called the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, which was a group to look at why what was causing the civil disorders. What he really hoped would come out of that group was some recognition that it wasn't the great society programs that were causing these disorders, but that, you know, there there were other things, that we had to find a way to continue those programs. And, indeed, the Advisory Commission um, uh, did that, although it recommended even more programs than the president was proposing at higher levels, even though president couldn't get through Congress, the programs at the lower levels he was proposing them. But the country was very disturbed about this. And remember, we were also facing the fact that for, uh, if you looked out about 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, the population of cities were going to change dramatically. And uh, the the, the uh, white population uh, in these northern cities would become a minority of the population in the cities. And we saw all of that, and Johnson wanted everybody pre- wanted to lay the groundwork so that for people to be prepared for that. He named the first African-American mayor in, Washington, in the country in Walter Washington. He did that because he wanted the black community to see you know, you can do it. You can get there. You can be the mayor. You can be the governor. You can be whatever. And uh, and, and the hope that that would help uh, temper the situation. But it, these, these were very, very difficult times. And, you know, in, in, incidentally, uh, in Newark, for example, uh, somebody was arrested, a black was arrested for a traffic accident. And the false riots spread that he had been beaten up. He hadn't been. But it gives you a sense of the tension that existed then and how similar it is to the tension that exists today and the way uh, a lot of young blacks feel about the way they're treated by the police uh, and their role uh, in the political and community life of the cities they live in. So let me go back to what you were talking about with regard to the events unfolding on Sunday, July 23rd, 1967, because it led to police confrontations and then five days of riots. Why did it uh, devolve into something that lasted nearly a week? And how did the president try to make sure that it, it didn't spread to other cities in the country? Well, I think the reason it lasted uh, was was uh, in part because Governor Romney was very reluctant to just flat out say he couldn't control it and ask for troops. And because of the real political uh, concerns that Romney and Johnson had, Johnson didn't trust Romney and Romney didn't trust Johnson. So it took a couple of days. It took a couple of days for federal troops to get into Detroit, correct? Yeah, it did, because President Johnson said, I don't trust what Romney is saying. Call Vance, get Vance to go to Detroit and tell me what's going on. So Vance went, was there about a day, and then then called and reported to us as to what the situation was. Uh, mean, 
And there were two things. One was sending Army troops in and also federalizing the Michigan National Guard, which brings it under the control of the regular Army and under President Johnson. I think those two things occurred. And and the other thing was uh, it, it it's not simple once a riot has spread, you know, the numbers you read at the beginning of this broadcast, once the riot spread all over the city, it's not simply a matter of, you know, people going in, locking up people or shooting people, I mean, harming people. It's, it was trying to get this thing tamped down without, as I mentioned earlier, Johnson saying, I don't want Americans killing Americans. And indeed, and indeed, not a single rioter was, uh, was shot by a, any of the military people that were there. Not one. So that part of it also... Uh, that's a wonderful result, but it delayed the time within which you could totally tamp down the riot. And in terms of ensuring that the riots in Detroit didn't spread elsewhere, was there anything that President Johnson could have done or did do? Well, well we did a lot. We, you know, we, we One was setting up the Commission on Civil Disorders. So we're saying we're going to look at this so we can get a picture of it around the country. And we really... Uh, there were there were isolated tensions after Detroit, but there really uh, we had nothing until we had what were the n- enormous disturbances uh, in the wake of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. And uh, you know, I think we sent troops into a half a dozen cities, and we had riots in a hundred cities. And think about, uh, in one sense. Uh, at least we had some experience with dealing with these situations. We had gotten prepared. We we uh, we had gotten a sense of what had to be done when there was a, a, a disturbance or a riot, and we had a president who was determined, determined uh, not to uh, abandon the quest for social justice. Uh, even though these were all very politically charged, as I mentioned. In fact, I just thought of this. In fact, uh, when a group of Republicans issued a statement uh, about the riots in Detroit and the Great Society causing these riots, Eisenhower uh, lent his name to that. And the president told me to call. There was a general that used to work for Eisenhower called Andy Goodpaster, who was his closest ally until uh, he died, and to call Goodpaster and tell him how disappointed Johnson was that Ike had done this, and Eisenhower immediately sent word back that he did not mean in any way to criticize the president or how he was handling the situation in Detroit. There was there was a lot of a lot of political tension as well as the racial tension, and the interesting thing is. A lot of the racial tension, whether it was Newark or Detroit, was uh, a reaction, not you know, uh, because of the Great Society programs, but a reaction against the way uh, blacks were treated or thought they were being treated by police 
and the jurisdictions in those cities. Remember, there wasn't a single black mayor in the country in those days. Uh, there was there, there wasn't the blacks hadn't yet become part of the political apparatus of the country. You know, it was it was when Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 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 sixty five in August that he I remember I remember him saying to the black leaders, you know, now you got to move from protest to the voting booth, get off the streets and into the voting booth, and they were just beginning to get into the voting booth. Today, you have thousands and thousands of african-american officials in the political system and uh and that's incidentally why i think uh some of these individual incidents are getting so much attention because there are local political leaders who are willing to call out and and demand action since then of course you have been back to detroit do you think that the scars of 1967 continue in that city today I think, you know, Detroit, I, I, I can't answer that in a flat way, but I can say that I, I do think that the, the poverty in Detroit and the failure of the city to really deal with, you know, terrible housing, vast blocks of ghettos with empty and dilapidated buildings, uh, lack of lack of education, lack of any financial resources, uh, uh, strain both in the city and the state. I mean, all of that has taken a heavy toll on Detroit. I think that uh, Detroit is was a better city during the 1967 riots than it is as I see it on television and read about it in the newspapers today. Really? Well, I do. I mean, I, I think I think that uh, I think there was a, there was a uh, there, there you know there was a larger part of the city that was functioning. The thing that was terrible about Detroit in in those days was one there was a it was totally in the hands of a white power structure, as I said. Johnson had gotten uh, the vote for African Americans, but it, they were just beginning to vote. They really, even where they had the vote, even where they didn't have the problems in the, that they had in the South of being blocked from voting, they really didn't see any point in voting because they didn't think they could get anything done with it. Now they can look at the world of this country and say, my God, we can elect a congressman, we can elect a senator, we've elected governors, we've elected most of the mayors in this country of the big cities. Uh, our votes count. Our word is good. You wrote the book The Triumph and Tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, The White House Years, and you've made reference to the Great Society. So let me conclude with that question. What was President Johnson's vision for a great society, what were its key components, and how would he view it today? Well, the key component I mean that everyone's entitled to health care, that that uh, people are entitled to a decent education, and that that was very important. He really thought education was was the avenue for people to succeed and move up on the economic ladder. Uh, he thought. It was uh, incredibly important uh, to open up the schools 
to open up the whole political process for uh, for all Americans, but notably African Americans. Uh, the Great Society was really, I mean, it were the three great civil rights acts uh, of, uh, you know, the, the Civil Rights Act of 64, about discrimination in employment and public accommodations, then the Voting Rights Act, then the Fair Housing Act passed in the in the wake of uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, I think those were very important. I also think people forget there was uh, there was a tre- tremendous focus on uh, childhood. You know, we talk about preschool education, Head Start. There are over a million kids in Head Start. Head Start was the first preschool education uh, in, in the uh, country. And I think, interestingly, if you look back, there was one wonderful uh, – Johnson was attacked, I believe, by Senator Goldwater when he was proposing Head Start, uh, who said this is going to Sovietize American children. And I remember at a press conference, LBJ, saying, you know uh, – the rich have always had nursery schools. I don't think giving the same chance to the poor is going to hurt them. I mean, he he wanted he wanted to put people on the on the same level, and you know you know so that uh, an individual uh, could be all that God gave him the talent to be, and that's what it was all about. It was never written in stone. Incidentally, he knew it would have to keep changing. And would change over time, but he wanted to get these things written into the legislative books, not executive orders. It's a very important point in the context of today. I remember when we were under a lot of pressure to do an executive order on fair housing to end the redlining and the racial discrimination in housing, and Johnson said, no, we've got to get a law executive order that I signed can be changed by the next president. And this is very controversial, not going to be popular. So we're going to get a law passed. And it took us three years, but we finally got it passed. Uh, so I, I think, I think he, I think he had a real sense of that. And, uh, you know, this was his legacy. He'd seen it. He'd seen it with the, uh, Mexican American kids in Catula that he taught, uh, uh, you know, he used to say you can't look into the eyes of those kids and not realize that they, they're asking why, why, why don't people like me because my skin is brown. You know why? So he wanted to. He this was his legacy. The one he wanted. This was the war he wanted to wage and and uh, you know hopefully win, but still, it's still a battle. Joseph Califano, joining us from New York, served as a senior domestic policy advisor to President Lyndon Johnson during the last four years of his administration. We thank you for being with us. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's podcast and would like to know more about the 1967 Detroit riots, we hope you tune in to American History Television on C-SPAN 3 this Sunday, July 23rd, beginning at noon Eastern for day-long coverage on the 50th anniversary of the riots. And by the way, all of AHTV's coverage is available on demand at cspan.org after it airs.
You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.